Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is September 29th, 2023, and I'm delighted to be here with Rebecca Ruth Gould. Hello, Rebecca. Hi, Laura. It's great to be here. So let me do a brief introduction and we will get right into it. Um, Rebecca is a is distinguished professor of comparative poet poetics, comparative poetics, yes, and global politics at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. Uh, she is also an accomplished author. Her latest book is entitled Erasing Palestine, Free Speech and Palestinian Freedom. It was published uh, earlier this summer in July 2023, and that's really the focus of our conversation today, or the hook, I should say, for our conversation today. Rebecca's other books include uh, The Persian Prison Poem, Sovereignty and the Political Imagination, which is Edinburgh University Press 2021, and Writers and Rebels, The Literature of Insurgency in the Caucasus, which is Yale University Press in 2016. She has also written on the challenges of defining anti-Semitism and respecting free speech for Prospect Magazine, Political Quarterly, The New Arab, Middle East Eye, and others. And I should just add very quickly, we're going to be referencing pretty much all of those articles and your book um, and maybe a couple studies in the course of today's podcast. And I will include notes to all of those things um, with this podcast. So people don't need to worry about following along. They'll be able to click right through when we get to it. Um, so welcome again. Um, as I said, the the hook for our conversation today is your book. And I think maybe the place to start rather than addressing the book directly is you. Um, uh, maybe you could introduce yourself and and briefly talk about your personal story, which is sort of the the, the kernel of the book um, and and talk about how you and your work uh, became inextricably entangled in the battle over free speech and Palestinian freedom. Absolutely. So I think the story begins in 2012 uh, when I was a postdoctoral fellow. I'd just gotten my PhD. Um, I was postdoctoral fellow at the Van Leer Institute in Jerusalem. However, I was living in uh, Bethlehem and for about a year. And really, it was a kind of crash course in the occupation, going through checkpoints all the time. And, and yeah, I, I, I learned a lot. And I became at a certain point, it was actually a five-year position, but I stayed there a year because it was this sort of schizophrenic world that I, I kind of couldn't continue living there anymore. Um, but I, before I left, I wrote this uh, brief article called Beyond Antisemitism, which was maybe like, like my book in some ways too, kind of written from a very personal perspective about my frustration with, with the occupation, with this sort of schizophrenic divided world that that Israelis were living in, uh, not seeing what was happening just a few uh, feet away from them. And, and uh, I published that. And I really moved on to other things in life. In fact, I wasn't, uh, didn't see myself as someone who was necessarily specializing in Palestine, just as someone who lived there. I moved on to other things. I got um, got a job at the University of Bristol, and this was in uh, started in 2016. That was actually a very important ha turned out to be a very important year in or 2015. Sorry, but yeah, um, the, the 2016 uh, soon after was an important year in the history of the anti-Semitism entanglement with with. Palestinian activism, because that was the year that the UK government uh, was the first country to adopt the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism under Theresa May. I, of course, at this time, 
wasn't paying attention to it, but it did come to affect me directly because a student in one of my classes uh, found this article that I'd mentioned uh, beyond anti-Semitism and it and uh, arranged to make a publicity uh, around it. Uh, he published an article uh, in, in the student newspaper uh, saying that in his view, it was anti-Semitic because of its criticism of Israel. And that, and the government became involved in a certain sense, not uh, at least certain politicians became involved. Uh, the right-wing newspapers like the Daily Telegraph published a story. And it was really interesting. I mean, I wasn't kind of planning on this happening in my life. I, you know, I'd really moved on to other things. Um, but I was sort of brought back to this, this moment of my writing the article and why I wrote the article. And, and if anything, the situation had gotten much worse, you know, since I'd left. So I wasn't, it wasn't a case of me. Everyone wanted me to, I mean, these, these people wanted me to retract, obviously. That would have been a great publicity coup for them. But that was not conceivable for me. And uh, and and initially at within the kind of university context it i think everyone was pretty clear i'm not i mean not the people who were accusing me but sort of the administrators colleagues and so forth even the lawyer for the university of bristol were pretty clear that it was not the article was not a big deal but when it was fine you know nothing to worry about but then when when the government became involved when there was then there was an official complaint against me uh by um a group called the campaign against anti-semitism and uh, they you know they wouldn't let the issue go and so then an investigation was launched into the article again keep in mind this is something i wrote in 2012 i had never set foot in the uk at that point so it would seem kind of irrelevant, but uh, there was enough pressure that something had to be done. So I got Rebecca, just, just to be yeah. clear, the, the complaints mm -hmm. against you for the article are entirely grounded in this, what was at that point, a relatively new definition of anti-Semitism that was being promoted. It isn't right. arguing that there is what we think of as class, the, the classical sense of anti-Semitism, hatred and and, right. and and prejudice and discrimination mm -hmm. or incitement against Jews because they are Jewish. This was based on a newly um, well, re newly promoted redefinition yes. of anti-Semitism yeah. that refocuses mm -hmm. on Israel. That's completely true. And I think that, yeah, the timing is absolutely crucial. That's why it, it, it is more, as much, I think, of a historical story as a personal one, because, yes, the timing was very important. It was, on the one hand, actually co coincided with uh, Israel Apartheid Week um, the, and and with, with the adoption of, of the IHRA definition. Uh, we should add, I mean, just to be a little bit um, technical, I suppose, it's it, in the sense that this thing that's called the IHRA definition is a minor revision of a previous definition called the EUMC definition, which never attained the same level of kind of political visibility. Uh, but so in that sense, it's not entirely new, but it's new in the sense of its political uh, recognition that it was it was receiving. Right. And I should say for, for folks who are listening, if you are a follower of Occupied Thoughts, you know that we have done many, many podcasts and webinars and we do we we have our own research online accessible to the public on IRA and its history, including an incredibly long and I would um, say ex almost exhaustively documented um, report that I just published on the history of the definition. What's striking for me though, is it's sort of coming at you after the fact, like you wrote something before yeah. this campaign started exactly. and then they came to get you with it, which is I think, it's quite striking. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Especially, no, I think that's a really important. I mean, that's that's kind of the point of the book too, is to make to place it historically. Because, yes, there have been, uh, and, and even I, I, in the U.S., it, it wasn't like necessarily a new thing for 
Palestinian professors to be accused of anti-Semitism. But in the UK, it was. It was a new moment. This the, the IHRA definition or any kind of definition of anti-Semitism actually had not been used in that way against an academic ever in a UK university context. And actually, I think before my arrival, um, there was actually a lot more freedom around what one could say about uh, Palestine. So yes, so so this was a really, and I, I that's what what made it kind of so surreal because I don't I think if this had happened three years earlier there would have nothing there would have been nothing for the university to do there would have been no the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, and that was referenced by uh, politicians who commented by the student um and so it was in a sense inevitable that that there was going to be this um this investigation uh yeah and so and so that's that's where i realized like i actually had to educate myself on what was going on what changes were happening in fact a colleague did kind of alert me to that in fact he when back when back when we thought it was not really a big deal the student's complaint because uh, initially the student the student made a complaint but didn't kind of go forward with it but then a bigger organization took it on um just the, the mere fact that they did mention this eumc definition was kind of the giveaway that it wasn't just about me that it was there was something else happening and and that colleague who told me that was a completely right. And so then, yes. And then um, actually very soon after, um, right, right around the time that, that this investigation about my article was, was underway, uh, Joe Johnson, uh, the uh, uh, Minister of Education, uh, circulated a letter to all UK universities telling them that they had to adopt the IHRA definition. So the government, you know, was not taking a neutral stance at all. They were they were saying that it's time to kind of crack down on all of this um, anti-apartheid uh, activism that's been that's been flourishing on UK university campuses. So yeah, at the end of that, I mean, I um, uh, the investigation concluded that everything was fine. But the fact that you know, I had I went for six months. I went on medical leave. I had a lawyer. I I was kind of done with <laughs> that university. The university by that point, it really made me feel. And I was, you know, all along I was told that I really shouldn't say anything, shouldn't speak out. So even I think what that that shows you is that you know, even if you are quote unquote vindicated and doesn't mean everything's fine you're still silenced you're still pressured to not say anything ever again yeah and you you cover this i think really beautifully in in the book and the the broader impacts the chilling effect the self-censorship the the next generation looking up particularly next generation of scholars of course in the u.s with tenure and the fear of not getting mm -hmm. tenure um so actually i want to i'm going to zoom back in on you and your personal story i want to zoom out for a second um, and and draw to people's attention a report that came out, um, I think last week, a uh, week right. before, from the European Legal Support Center, which is, by the mm -hmm. way, it's funded by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. We love them. And the British Society for Middle Eastern Studies. Uh, it was a report called Freedom of Speech and Academic Freedom in UK Higher Education, the Adverse Impact of the IRA Definition of Antisemitism. And I will say that this is a really powerful report, and it is it is mercifully brief in terms of, you know, it's not, it's not like hundreds of pages. You can get through it. Um, it also um, offers a response for those of us who've been, been, been warning of the dangers of this politicized definition of anti-Semitism. And the answer you often get is, well, well, can you show how words ever had that effect? Which I think is kind of hilarious. It's like you warning people, like if you don't put a warning on it, people will die on this, people will get sick when they eat it. And like, well, we're gonna have to wait and see if people eat it and get sick, maybe no one will eat it. <laughs> Um, and it's like, yes, but but the people pushing it are like, you're, we're going to make you eat it. That's the whole point. 
Um, I'm sorry, that's a, that may be a bad analogy, but it, it, it's really, it, it's useful to have this um, report actually showing harm. Yeah. And the summary of that report states, I'm just going to read really briefly, quote, this report demonstrates that accusations of anti-Semitism leveled against students and staff in UK universities are often based on a definition of anti-Semitism, Ira, that is not fit for purpose and in practice is undercutting academic freedom and the rights to lawful speech of students and staff and causing harm to the reputation and careers of those accused. So um, they they have anonymized all of the, the details of their cases to protect the innocent, I'm sure. Names have been changed to protect the innocent. Um, but it's pretty clear that you're one of those cases, if yes, not maybe exactly the Ur yeah. case. Um, so I wanted to ask you to talk about the report and, and just sort of zooming out what you see as an academic in the UK, and you've obviously been following this since day one, since you're at the center of it, um, what, what is happening? Sure. Yeah, so I do want to recommend that report to anyone interested in this issue who cares about it. I think it is a fabulous document. I think what makes it very powerful, precisely as you said, is that it helps us put a kind of, uh, makes tactile the question of censorship and silencing, which is very hard to measure and quantify. And it does that through these very powerful testimonials. Uh, another point that I think is really fabulous about it is the way that it captures uh, like the impact on con uh, contingent staff. And there's people with part-time work who don't necessarily have permanent positions and the disproportionate impact it has on Palestinian students and staff. Um, in terms if I, if I could just add, one of the things that's surreal about having to demonstrate all this is that the people promoting it are quite clear this is the intended impact yeah. it's a feature mm -hmm. that is the feature not mm -hmm. a bug but then those of us who are warning of the danger are being told well you you, you can't unless you can demonstrate impact <laughs> okay so i'm sorry go on right um so i yeah i think what one of the most like one thing just from what the part that you read that that is worth dwelling on uh, is this not fit for purpose so that makes us think okay like what is the purpose what would be fit for purpose i think the first thing you know and it's really worthwhile to kind of critique the concept of anti-Semitism that's embedded in this IRA definition. But I think even kind of before we get there, even before we look at the, look what it's the content, look at like the way that it's presented as this thing that if you adopt, you know, you're suddenly free, a, a institution suddenly like purifies itself of racism as, as, as a kind of tool, right? I would, I think that really needs to be questioned and interrogated. Um, it the, one of the big problems, yeah, with the definition is that it is it makes a political statement about you know what um, it means anti-Zionism being potentially anti-Semitic, anti right? I, I would say like people have the right to hold that opinion, but it is an opinion, and so to put that embed that within a definition that's supposed to be objective and neutral uh, is a real disaster. Uh, so it, it it's and the definition itself is also just muddled and unclear. Um, so it doesn't, you know, none of what it says, I just think there's a real mismatch between like what it is as a document and what it says it's supposed to do. That's so the fact that it just isn't fit for purpose creates, um, I think it opens the space for a lot of, for kind of bureaucratic abuse and a lot of hypocrisy in an administrative context, right? So, uh, even before we get to the content, just, it's, it's not a good definition it, 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 yeah, it doesn't capture anti-Semitism. Um, so, so yeah, that's, it, it's a, it becomes a box sticking exercise that can kind of help to mediate whatever bureaucratic agenda is, is you know, needs, the university needs to protect itself. Um, and I think yeah, the kind of a, a way of 
uh, what, what I see happening, I mean, to, to be concrete, like I'm, I'm speaking from what I see happening, for example, at the University of Bristol, where, or, um, or other UK universities, of course, but if they, they, they need to demonstrate, you know, once you have this, this definition and groups are asking, well, how have you shown that you've eradicated anti-Semitism? Well, the answer to that question, you know, is that, oh, we've adopted this definition, this IRA definition. Yeah, that that that's a distraction from both anti-Semitism and any other kind of social justice activism. And uh, that's a that's a point that Ken Stern has made numerous times. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's mm-hmm. almost as if you know you have, you have students who are rallying around this. Jewish students told like this is what you need to rally around. When it's not it's not like adopting this doesn't make white supremacist right. neo Nazis <laughs> anti-Semites disappear. It mm-hmm. does allow groups who want to shut down a certain kind of free speech and academia mm-hmm. shut it down more easily. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mm-hmm. actually target anti-Semitism. And I will say, I, I mentioned to you when you got on the call, I just got off, I, I listened to a, a an X on X, there was a spaces conversation between Elon Musk and a, a lot of right-wing Jewish figures. And and listening to that, that spaces, one gets the sense that what they're trying to say to, to Elon Musk is if you adopt IRA, people will stop worrying about you being an anti-Semite and then you can shut down left-wing free speech, which, you know, anti-woke, and then the rest of it isn't a problem. It's just kind of surreal given what's happening today. Um, anyway, Absolutely. go on. Yeah, no, I mean, I, so I, I think we should look at that word adopt as much as we should look at it's hugely problematic content of the definition that, yeah, that makes it not fit for purpose in the first place. And and also, I think in the UK context, the other element that that should be taken into consideration is just that the, I mean, at least that I, I I thought about myself when I was going through this is the, you know, the lack of a a First Amendment um, to kind of really provide a, a bedrock sense that um, it making that would make it illegal, you know, to discriminate against people for their points of view. I think it does it opens it, it's particularly dangerous dangerous in that context. Uh, although, of course, the First Amendment's being eroded in all kinds of ways in the U.S. too. So. <laughs> Uh, but but I think that, yeah, that that creates that maybe that's I, I would say that, you know, the IRA in general kind of globally has been had a very bad effect on Palestinian activism everywhere. But in the UK, I think in university context, like it's potentially at least or chronologically is the worst, I would say at the beginning, at least and maybe it's spreading. And it's partly, I think, because of that, um, that will it, the, the, the tendency to kind of cave into bureaucracy, lack of a of a internalized sense of, of free speech right, um, and then the IRA kind of coming in and making everything, um, yeah, even worse. And I mean, I don't, I don't want to get off on a complicated tangent, but this also comes in the UK on the context of the Corbyn um, chaos and kerfuffle, mm-hmm. the words I'm trying to come up with, um, around anti-Semitism and the Labour Party and accusations and witch hunts and all of that. So, I mean, it's sort of like the, it was fertile ground, I think, for, for this move yes. towards, towards mm-hmm. academia. And for folks who are not watching the UK, we're witnessing right now a move um, in the uh, in, in to, for legislation, for actual, yes. well, I think it's, it's advancing rather quickly. This is legislation. Oh, yeah. To um, right, it's legislation mm-hmm. to prohibit local councils and other government bodies from um, boycotting Israel or settlements, and it's a very it's a fascinating piece of legislation because it actually um, in it 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 singles out um, Israel Palestine as the issue on which it can't ever be really overturned or challenged, and it has very broad free speech implications for just people showing up and expressing opinions. 
Um, and it also does erode the right to boycott more broadly for everything, which is, of course, um, maybe why some people will care about it. But that looks like it's advancing pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, it's it's remarkable how um, how successful it's been. Unfortunately, I mean, it, and yeah, yeah, and that I mean, that, and I will say that that is directly linked to Ira in the sense mm -hmm. that the you know anti BDS and boycott being synonymous with anti Semitism and all of that. It's all it's all part and parcel. Um, I want to to come back, I mean, looking at Ira more broadly, and I, I I, want to I want to refer to some of your articles because every time you write anything, I'm like, yes, you, you say things very, very well, very clearly, you sum up a lot of complex ideas in ways that I think are incredibly effective. So, and you know, I follow this stuff obviously on, on my side of the pond. I follow Congress very carefully. There was recently a kerfuffle with Congress because a Congresswoman, um, Jayapal, um, was at a at Netroots and she uh, criticized Israel. And immediately there was this outbreak of, of outrage at her bipartisan, including calling her an anti-Semite. She ended up walking it back somewhat, but it, it fed the, the nastiness in Congress that accuses progressives of being anti-Semitic because they criticize Israel. And you, writing from the other side of the pond, observed, uh, you wrote a great article entitled Speaking the Truth About Israel in Congress. Uh, there'll be a link to that. And you observed, I'm going to quote this, if we accept the rhetorical turn that has dominated U.S. public discourse around Israel since the advent of the IRA definition, we are forced to choose between acknowledging Palestinians' point of view and being accused of anti-Semitism. This is an unsustainable and unacceptable opposition that follows logically from definitions of racism that prioritize feelings over material conditions. Everyone has the right to be offended, but no one has the right not to be offended or to translate their feelings of offense into an unequivocal demonstration of racism. So I want you to unpack that a little bit um, can, and, and, and talk about this extremely um, problematic intellectual framing that in effect, I would say maybe more, maybe oversimplistically, it almost requires that we all be anti-Palestinian in order to not be called anti-Semitic. Yes, I would say even anti-Palestinian or potentially just kind of oblivious, utterly oblivious of the existence of Palestinians. I I felt that's kind of where the, the title for my book comes from, because that's what I noticed happening in the UK. Every controversy about Israel uh, kind of from the beginning is in the university context, just automatically excluded Palestinian perspectives. Also, by the way, this these hearings at, in Parliament regarding the BDS bill didn't have any Palestinians offering their, they weren't invited. Of course, they had opinions and they are impacted by this legislation. I, I agree. Maybe it's a semantic distinction. I would argue that asking people to be oblivious to or, mm -hmm. or indifferent to mm -hmm. um, the suffering of people is a right. form of, 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 oh, of yeah. so like, I, I think we're so saying the right. same thing in different words. Absolutely. Yes, I agree. It's kind of a, um, a step along the way. Yes, absolutely. It is ultimately, it comes down to the same thing. There's no question about it. I But I guess I'm just interested in kind of the process through which that hatred, anti-Palestinian position kind of becomes feasible and it it has to involve erasure and and right, not even oblivion because that, that implies like passivity, but yeah, something kind of active erasure. Uh, and yes, it ha I witness that happening, have am witnessing it happening time and again in the UK in the context of my situation as well. It was very interesting that uh, the, the panel that um, reviewed my article and which decided it was not anti-Semitic uh, 
one thing that they they misinterpreted it and they 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 said it was written in the United States, which it wasn't, uh, erasing the fact that it was written in Palestine, even though I, I referenced it being written in Palestine in the article itself. Uh, and yes, then the, the, there's the BDS par parliament hearings that that, that are are not not allowing Palestinians to speak. There's the fact that every time there's a controversy about Israel, um, anti-Israel activism in UK universities, it is seen as an issue for the Jewish societies, but not the Palestinian societies. Uh, it is that's happening again and again and again. So uh, it, it's yeah, it's not it's not a it's presented as an issue that and and the that's the impact the the kind of cumulative effect of all of the these de defending oneself against these accusations as well is that one's become so en enwrapped in kind of debating what anti-Semitism is and is not, but 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 the Palestinian question is is obscured from view. Yeah, I, I'm I'm I was really I was really struck by this paragraph. I you know I I in the United States we had last last week in Pennsylvania there was the Palestine Rights Conference. Mm -hmm. And and Foundation for Middle East Peace was a proud supporter of that. I attended it. Um, it was a remarkable event. I it felt really privileged for the parts that I was able to attend. If you looked at the discourse around it, um, it was so openly racist against Palestinians and 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 so intolerant. And it goes back to something you said in the earlier article about, you know, the the feelings. It's like this makes us uncomfortable and therefore it's anti-Semitism. And if you don't agree with that, you're an anti-Semite. Um, it, 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 there's no gray area in this at all for 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 even thinking differently. Um, I want to go back to the the definition itself, and and I've spent so much time sucked into the IRA conversation, and I get a little bit glib sometime. But you know, the the advocates of the IRA definition um, are are fond of saying you have to define it to fight it, right? Define it to mm -hmm. fight it. And I have argued, in fact, I have a bookmark tweet, or I should say a post on X, which says that what they really mean is you have to define all meaningful criticism of Israel as policies and Zionism as anti-Semitism in order to fight it because you can't win the arguments any other way, um, which I think is true. Um, at the same time, the question of how you define anti-Semitism is a real one, and, and especially in an era of surging um, hatred, incitement, threats, violence, discrimination against people because they are Jewish, which is what um, most of us have always thought of as anti-Semitism. And it's actually how the Biden administration defined it in their um, anti-Semitism strategy. Good for them. You took on this question specifically head on in a recent article entitled, Why We All Need a More Precise, Practical Definition of Anti-Semitism. And you took it on in such a thoughtful way in this article. Um, I want you to talk about <laughs> What, in your view, is a more precise and practical definition of anti-Semitism? What does that involve? And what do we need to shift in our thinking to get there? Sure. So also, I want to um, mention, I'll answer that question in very specific ways, but I want to mention my favorite chapter in the Erasing Palestine book that, in a sense, gives an answer to that question, but from a different period. So I have a chapter about uh, Leon Abram, who was a wonderful kind of discovery I made uh, while I was doing the research for the book, uh, who, who offered a, not just a definition, but a, a very ambitious study of anti-Semitism um, while he was living in Nazi-occupied Belgium. And uh, he uh, is now, of course, I'm not saying that that's, that's the solution to what the problems we face today, but I just want to flag people because I do think that we need historical awareness. It's not always been the same. It's, it's, there's needs to be some awareness of, of not, not just, you know, before, before Israel, what was anti-Semitism and, and so forth. Uh, but in, in practical terms, I think 
One, the first move I would make, and this is something I think people like Ken Stern would agree with as well, is distinguishing between like hate crimes and then racist sentiment, right? Because the approach to those things in in whatever whatever kind of world one is living in, they 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 it isn't logical that they would be identical, right? There are things that like that are that are in danger of people's safety, like murder, um, arson that obviously need to be penalized to the fullest extent of the law. And when those have an element of, of anti-Semitism or racism, that makes that does make it worse. And I think it's entirely appropriate to use uh, anti-Semitism to use uh, in that definition of anti-Semitism in that context to, to intensify the criminal penalties for things that are actually crimes in the first place, right? But then I think we all know that there are, there are a lot of idiots out there in the world and um it's it doesn't it's it doesn't work to just criminalize everything that's that's wrong and unethical and more and that we need to fight against and so that i think the the kind of strategies and solutions for the kind of what can we say implicit insidious anti-semitism that we find in ideas and words which is no there's no question it's proliferating there's no question it's a problem but I'm not so convinced that the solution to that is a legal one in the sense, you know, we can't put them all in prison. <laughs> so I think that 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 approach requires that that's where we need things like historical awareness, education. Um, and and yeah, so so I, I think just a diversified approach. There's no one size fits all like you can't deal with Holocaust denial in the same way as you can deal with arson or like it, it just doesn't fit into this this rubric and um you can't kind of you can't mix it up with with the political uh agendas either uh so i think that that, that so yeah um i i think i think that that distinction is, is kind of the key to to um moving forward with the conversation and actually a, a challenging anti-Semitism is making that distinction between hate crimes and, and where anti-Semitism is implicated in that and anti-Semitic racism, which should be challenged at all levels, uh, yeah, through education and and um, debate. Um. So I guess I, I had another, I have another question for you, which relates directly mm -hmm. to this. And I'd planned this to be my last question, but it may not be because I really okay. want to find sure. you out on this. Um, so you talk about the more precise definition. What's right. in, what's mm -hmm. in, what you what you you mentioned sure. sort of passing implied is this is separate from the politicized definition, yes. right? Mm -hmm. So that presupposes that you found a way to 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 disentangle the mm -hmm. politicized, making mm -hmm. it about Israel, and pushing back speech. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. On the on the Jayapal article, I left out the part which was the the hook for your quote in that article about Congress was Debbie Wasserman. Schultz, a congresswoman from Florida, talking about how much it hurt her hearing yeah. these words that the congresswoman said and this, mm -hmm. this mistaking feeling hurt for meaning that the other person's language is automatically anti-Semitic or racist right. or has to be shut down. Right. Um, you also talk about the structural inequities, which I'd love to have you talk a little bit about. In fact, before sure. I get to my last question, I want you to talk about the idea of how the concept of structural inequities comes into what should be a, a, a meaningful yeah. understanding of free mm -hmm. speech and and limits on free speech and how that how that relates to anti-semitism and yes. and free speech around Palestinian freedom yes and I think that that brings us back to a couple of your earlier questions as well like at the limitations of the IRA definition so another thing I haven't quite said yet but really needs to be said is that I think one of the big, perhaps the biggest problem, there's so many, biggest problem with the IRA definition is the way that it separates anti-Semitism from other kinds of racism. Uh, because, you know, 
while there are historical differences, that I think anti-Semitism and racism in general have a much more in common than they have different. They are about hatred of groups, about stereotypes, about the persecution of people based on their their identities, whether projected or whatever. And that that that, about dehumanization. It's about dehumanizing the people who you feel are somehow their their very existence and their historical narratives are intolerable to you. Precisely. And I think the only way of understanding that is with relation in relation to other kinds of hatred. It's not exclusive to any group. It's it's unfortunately the humans have done that throughout history to various kinds of people. And we need to look at it comparatively. And the IRA definition does not do that. In fact, it prevents it, uh, I would say. Um, so so yeah, a, a material definition, a precise definition is one that finds that precision by comparing to other kinds of racisms. Maybe finds differences too, but at least it brings them into conversation. It looks at different kinds of dehumanizations. And you have to guide me back to your original question. I think I was getting there. Structural inequities. Yes, yes, structural inequities. Yes. So I think that is precisely so that is that is one thing in addition to dehumanization. The, the, the creation of people and, and I'm not just talking about 2023 I mean this is this is throughout history right the creation the separation of people into different classes assigning them to certain kinds of jobs that are appropriate for them right that obviously has happened in the context of Jews with a history of anti-semitism but in India as well caste system you know that's it, it, a very widespread phenomenon so that I think that's that gets at the heart of kind of what racism is and also why racism persists because obviously the people who are at the top of that hierarchy benefit from it um so that's that helps us ex- explain that the staying power and I think it does so in a much more powerful way than than this kind of bureaucratic adoption of a definition yeah I, I was just as you were talking, I tweeted out the other day, um, the Vicente Fox from uh, Mexico had tweeted out, uh, it was in response to a, someone had tweeted something about there's a there's a woman candidate for president who's Jewish, mm-hmm. um, looks like she could even win. And, and he had tweeted out in Spanish, you know, Jewish and foreign. And I, I had just commented, you know, according to the IRA definition, that's not anti-Semitic, just kind of surreal, right? You know, but criticize, if you criticize Israel, anti-Semitic, it was, it was just quite amazing. Um, all right. So, so this, this is my final question to you, but it, it brings together a lot. And I want you really to take this in whatever direction you want. I first came across your work in 2020, um, long before I this book and whatever, I I found an article that you wrote in an academic journal called The Political Quarterly. It is a heavily researched and footnoted essay. Thank you for all of that. I love that. Entitled The IRA Definition of Antisemitism, Denying Antisemitism by Erasing Palestinians. I suspect maybe it is the kernel for the book even a little bit. Um, I want to read what for me was the most like just just took my breath away um, excerpt. There are many. Um, And here we go. Quote, the working definition, which is what this used to be called, the working definition, it's, it's, it is, I mean, it's still called, it's the IRA, IHRA's working definition. The working definition is at once a proxy for and a symptom of a range of issues, including the failure of international law to hold Israel accountable for its crimes, the ineffectiveness and or indifference of international law towards the ongoing occupation of Palestine and the unresolved legacies of the Holocaust. All of these issues are entangled into the working definition and to help and help to account for the speed with which with the with which it has been adopted across Europe and the North. So these words for me just get right to the heart of the matter. 
Um, can you talk about this entanglement and, and writing at, in your thought, you're a historian, you're an academic, you've researched, you know, these kinds of issues in other contexts. What does this entanglement mean for efforts to fight real anti-Semitism and, mm -hmm. and, and to fight back against the weaponization? Because clearly this is more than just saying to people, oh, you're doing it wrong or your language is imprecise. There's so much built into this unstated, right? That's behind mm -hmm. the effort. And maybe people are even unaware of it. So how do we, how, how, how does one unpack that? Right. So I think the, uh, in terms of taking that forward, that what it, what it show, I mean, in terms of moving away, moving beyond that kind of bind that, that, that entanglement is a very powerful entanglement. And I think it was a very, um, if anything, the people who, who conceived of the IRA definition, and they were very strategically minded, very, you know, good, good thinkers about how to, how to move a campaign forward. Because I think in a sense, the, the awareness of, of the, the injustice of the occupation was growing and they found a very good tool to kind of make that conversation much, much more difficult. And I think what it, what, what the effectiveness of that strategy, like the, the best response to it is to maybe bring free speech back into leftist and pro-Palestinian activism. I think there is a sense in which it had kind of um, gone to the, the side, it's been seen as a, as a, as a value that is more for the right-wing people, you know, to talk about cancel culture. Well, actually um, I, it's, I, I think it's a powerful tool. And I, I, I kind of discovered its power um, as someone who was accused or, or I, I discovered being deprived of that right uh, transforming and changed me and made me much more politically aware, I think of this issue in a way that I would never have become. And I think, I think we need to find a way to, 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 to use free speech to our advantage. I mean, the, it's, a, it's a universally recognized value, but but people tend to only recognize it, you know, when it suits their own political agenda. And I I think it can be much more, I think a real um, effective kind of reckoning with it and reclaiming of it can actually be really helpful in 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 challenging the, the dominance of the IRA definition, because that is its greatest flaws, that it is really about censorship, although it doesn't claim, it doesn't acknowledge it as such. And so, yeah, I think, I think that that's kind of where, where it sends me, the direction in which it sends me. Well, thank you. I think that's a great place to leave. It's a, it's hopeful and that it's, it gives us a constructive way to think about this. Um, I will encourage people to to read Rebecca's book. It is really, um, it, I have to say that that writing something that is simultaneously so personal, but makes such a universal, um, the, the 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 values at stake are so universal, and I think you you walk the line between the personal and universal um, just just brilliantly. It's a it's a really superb work, um, and also the articles which I have relied on myself a great deal over the past few years. So thank you for that. Um, with that, we are going to end this podcast. I have so much appreciate your time. Thank you, Rebecca, for joining me. Uh, maybe we can do this again sometime. Uh, and if you're ever in Washington, I'd love to do this in person. Um, I want to thank our listeners for tuning into this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Make sure you check the website, www.fmap.org, for resources related to this podcast and lots of other great content related to Palestine and Israel. Um, also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date. That's on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and you can, of course, watch the video version of this and see our smiling faces on the FMEP YouTube channel. Um, and with that, I'm Laura Friedman signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. Great.